Pastor Jason was talking about Saul's relationship with David that was marked by one of envy and jealousy. Well, today I get to talk about the other side, a relationship between Jonathan and David that was marked by love and loyalty. And so often the scripture puts those things kind of back to back or next to each other to contrast and highlight those differences. And so we're going to be looking at the kind of qualities that are necessary for a faithful friend. Let's pray as we begin. Father, I thank you for your scripture. It is powerful, it's relevant, it speaks to all areas of life. And all of us, when we come to the area of friendship, long for those kind of relationships that are so meaningful and fulfilling. And Father, I pray that you would help us to do this well. Help us to be a church where people feel like they can find and make friends. And help us, Lord, in our individual relationships to be faithful, loving, and loyal to one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Deep within the human heart is a need for friendship. Another word that we use to describe that is also companionship. We have a need to love and to be loved. We have a need for those kind of relationships where we can be ourselves and not feel like we have to pretend or put on or guard our words or be careful about what we say. Because we have those relationships, those friendships where people know us and they love us in spite of maybe our differences or weaknesses or they uh, enjoy being together and it doesn't feel pressured at all. We all want friends where we can laugh together and cry together. We want friends uh, who know us and who love us. We want friends who will listen to us and talk with us as we share ideas and they accept us. And we also want friends who will challenge us when we are maybe going astray and we need to be brought back. Or we want friends who will stick with us when we're going through some tough times in our life. You can think about youth and maybe your own uh, childhood growing up, the difference that one friend can sometimes make in a person's life is huge. If a student going through uh, elementary school or high school or even in those college years can have one Christian friend who will walk with them, it may be the difference between someone falling away from the Lord or staying faithful to Him. And if you can have an adult who cares about you, who loves you and listens to you and encourages you, uh, that's huge, that kind of example and role model. We all have a need for that. And when that is absent, we feel it acutely. I remember reading a story about an elderly man who had lost his wife. She had passed away, and he felt all alone. And you know, in his life and his experience, he just longed for human touch, and so one of the places where he got that was when he got a haircut. And he scheduled a haircut kind of every three weeks just because that was about the only human touch he was getting. I think of people, uh, you've read stories perhaps too, of people who call into hotlines just because they want somebody to talk to and they're feeling alone. Even those that are wealthy, I ran across this story about Elvis Presley, who uh, near the end of his life, I mean, Elvis was fabulously rich. Uh, it said of him that he owned three jet airplanes, two Cadillacs, a Rolls Royce, a Continental, 
a Buick and Chrysler station wagon, a Jeep, a dune buggy, a converted bus, and three motorcycles. And he had all of these things. And his favorite car was this Cadillac that was uh, covered with 40 coats of a specially prepared paint that included crushed diamond and fish scales. I don't know why you need that, but he did. And just about everything in it was trimmed in gold, you know. And so here's this guy who's got all of this wealth and resources. And one day, he was sick, and he had a cold, and he was sitting in his music room, and he was playing on the piano. And his manager came in and asked him, how do you feel? And Elvis Presley's response was, alone, all alone. Extremely wealthy, yet all alone. How sad is that? I mean, to have all of those resources, and yet feel like there's no one who really cares for you. And I have a feeling that there are people in our community, maybe even in our church, who feel that way, alone in this world. Is there anybody who cares about me? Is there anybody who has taken an interest in me? Are there people who would reach out and help if you were going through a crisis? All of us long for those kind of friendships that are deep and meaningful. And God intends to meet our needs for companionship and friendship through marriage is one of the ways they meet those relationship needs. It's through our family, it's through our church, and it's through our friends in particular, our friends in the body of Christ who share the same kind of values and faith that we do. You may have heard the saying, if you want to have a friend, you need to be a friend. There's a lot of truth in that. That if we are going to have those kind of friendships, we also need to reach out and be that kind of friend to others as well. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this relationship between Jonathan and David and take a look at the qualities that mark their friendship, in particularly looking at Jonathan here. What are the qualities of a faithful friend? Well, number one is love. I want to start a couple chapters earlier and take a look at how Jonathan and David's relationship began. You know, after the story in chapter 17 where David had defeated Goliath in battle and Israel won a great victory, you would have thought that Saul would have been grateful for his accomplishments. Initially he was, but when he began to hear these people singing that Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands, you know, he became jealous and envious of David. And over the next chapters of 18 and 19, he would try to kill David, literally try to kill David. But in contrast, at the beginning of chapter 18, if you turn there and look at verses 1 to 4, you will find that Jonathan's heart was knitted together with David. It said, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic, even his sword, his bow, and his belt. David's, excuse me, Jonathan and David's friendship here began to grow after this significant event in Israel's life. And there was something about their time together. I mean, you 
probably have experienced it in that same way where they just had a kindred spirit. They talked together. It was like they just enjoyed each other. They shared the same convictions and values. There was something that was an attraction in that way, and this was a healthy male relationship. I think in our day and age, sadly, we need to say this was not a homosexual relationship because there are times when in the homosexual community they wanted to portray it that way and it was not that kind of relationship these young men were faithful loyal friends who were drawn to one another because of their common interests and values and Jonathan takes the initiative to establish this covenant with David and it's very interesting I want you to think about that for a moment I mean, Jonathan is the king's son. He's the prince. He's the one who on one side you think would have everything going for him. He is a, an accomplished warrior himself. He has led Israel in battle. Uh, he is the heir to the throne of Israel. You know, he's the next guy in line. He's got everything going for him, and you would think his destiny is to be the king of Israel. And David is the son of a shepherd. I mean, he's this guy who was out there, you know, defending the sheep against bears and lions and doing that, but God's call was on his life. And Jonathan recognized that. And Jonathan voluntarily surrenders to David his robe, his tunic, his sword, his bow, his belt. It was a sacrificial gift that required great humility. Now, in the biblical record, as they tell these things, there are times when they kind of compress things, and you wonder, you know, did you do that right away, or how, how did all of this fit together? And we don't have all of the details that, you know, of what happened in the months that passed. But you see in Jonathan this recognition of God's call on David's life, and he is willing to lay down everything for him. It's like John the Baptist with Jesus when John the Baptist said of Jesus that he must increase and I must decrease Jonathan sees in David the qualities and God's hand and knows that one day he is going to be king and so John is, Jonathan is willing to risk everything for his friend and he says to him whatever you want me to do for you I will do where did Jonathan learn that kind of humility? I mean, Jonathan certainly did not see that in Saul, his father. You know, Saul is envious. Saul is jealous. Saul wants to guard everything. And you see this contrast between these two men where Saul trusted no one and Jonathan trusted everyone and believed the best about them. We also see a contrast wherein the book of Samuel, we see that sometimes good men can have wicked sons. I mean, in chapter 8, Samuel's sons did not make good judges, did they? Because they were corrupt. And we saw that in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. And yet here now you have a guy that was a bad man who has a great son. I mean, Saul was turning away from the Lord, and yet Jonathan is growing closer to the Lord and wanting to follow him with his whole heart. You can't always predict those things, can you? It's choice of the heart that we make. Are we going to walk with God and follow him and lay our life down before him? 
And so here Jonathan does that. In chapters 18 and 19, Saul is going to try and kill David. He had brought David in to play uh, music in his palace. And three times Saul flies off in a rage and tries to pin David to the wall with a spear. It's a good thing he wasn't a very good shot on doing this because David could have been dead right there. He will send David into battle with the Philistines, hoping the Philistines will kill him. That fails. And so he sends men to capture and kill David. Three times David has to flee for his life. And in chapter 20, the chapter we're going to look at this morning, um, David goes to the one person he feels like he can trust. He goes to Jonathan. And here's what he says in chapter 20, verses 1 to 4. David fled from Nioth at Ramah, and he went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to take my life? And Jonathan replies, Never. I mean, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It's not so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. You see, Jonathan was somehow being kept out of the loop or he refused to believe what David was saying, that his father was trying to kill him. I mean, he just couldn't imagine that. Why would he do that? And so what happens is that David proposes a test. And Jonathan is willing to go along with it to see what Saul's heart is really like. And so David proposes this test in verse 5, and he says this. Look, tomorrow's the new moon festival, and I'm supposed to dine with the king, but let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. And if your father misses me at all, tell him. David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. And if he says very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? And David asked, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? So here's this test that's proposed. You know, they're going to have this festival. Saul's going to expect David to be there. David says, tell him that I've gone to my hometown of Bethlehem to celebrate this feast. And let's see how your father reacts. Now you can imagine this puts Jonathan in a difficult situation. He feels a loyalty to his father. He feels a loyalty to David. How can he do both? But he agrees because of his love for David to go along with this test. He is willing to risk everything for his friend. Do you have a friend like that? Do you have a person who will stand with you when you are going through difficulties and trials in your life? And are you that kind of friend when it comes to others? We all need that. 
Because there are those days when life may turn and may become very difficult and we find ourselves going through trials as well. We need people who will give us a call and say, are you doing okay? How are you doing today? Can I pray for you or would you like to get together for a coffee or just to talk? We need people who come alongside of us to help us when maybe we are feeling overwhelmed by life and circumstances. Maybe it's when we're going through a time of illness or stress in our family. What a blessing it is to have others who notice and who will come alongside to walk with us in those situations. Jonathan was that kind of friend for David because of his love for him. And we also see in Jonathan this quality of loyalty. We see it in the uh, affirmation that he makes to David of whatever you want me to do, I will do for you. But we see it also in the way that this story plays out. David had asked the question, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? And Jonathan says to him in verse 11, come, let's go out into the field. And so they went there to gather. And basically what Jonathan is going to say to him is that I will tell you my father's response. You can count on me. And he expresses his loyalty to David here in a covenant once again. I want you to notice those words there where he says, let's go out into the field in verse 11. It's the very same phrase that is used in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain said to Abel. Cain invited his brother to go into the field and he killed him there in the seclusion of that field. And here Jonathan invites David to go into the field to spare his life. Again, it's a contrast that is highlighted in Scripture because of the difference in Jonathan's character. And so Jonathan comes along and he says, this is what I will do for you. You know, he said in verse 12, By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. And if he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. Jonathan is affirming there in that statement that he recognizes that David is going to be king. And he is asking for God's blessing on David just as God had blessed Saul and brought him to this position of being king. And in verse 14, he asks for David's favor and he says, Show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. He's asking for God's blessing on David, and he's also asking for this favor of protection to his family. Because at that time, sadly, one of the ways that kings often dealt with their rivals was they killed them. A new king came to the throne, and he wiped out anybody that would be a potential rival to that throne. He is asking David not to do that and to show him favor. And these two men will pledge their loyalty to one another, and it is a promise that both of them would keep. In verses 16 and 17, it said, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath, 
out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. And they both affirmed their loyalty to one another. Now, we don't usually do that in friendships, do we? You know, we don't usually in our day and age have a covenant between friends where we affirm our loyalty in that way. But we do make that covenant in marriage, don't we? When two people come together in marriage, they pledge their vows to one another, and they do that publicly, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And we make a covenant when we join in marriage, a covenant that is witnessed by God, pledging our faithfulness to one another. And sometimes that faithfulness is tested by the circumstances of life in very hard ways. In a couple weeks, Gail and I are going to be attending a reunion uh, for fellow students who were at Moorhead State University the same years that we were, students that were also involved with Campus Crusade for Christ as a ministry. And God did a really neat thing in those years with a couple hundred students that were involved in the ministry, and many of those, about 30, went on into full-time Christian ministry. And we're getting together down in the cities. Haven't done this before, really, in this way, and kind of tried by email to contact as many people as we could. Well, we got an email from one of our friends who won't be able to attend because he has ALS, and he's unable to travel as he would like. But he sent an email telling his story, and it is an incredible story of love and loyalty and faith and I want to read part of it for you this morning. His name is Mark Warren. He grew up in Crookston and uh, very close to the area where I grew up and attended Moorhead State. And he said, after earning my BS in biology in 1976, I went to new staff training out at Arrowhead Springs with Campus Crusade for Christ. His goal was to reach students with a life-transforming message of Jesus' grace and love. After four years at Indiana State and Terre Haute, I was assigned to Illinois State University in Normal, Illinois, where I met and fell in love with Susie, whom I married in June of 1983. Shortly after our first anniversary, I was preparing for a career change into x-ray technology. And during the physical exam that was part of the admission process, I asked the doctor about some strange twitching that I had started noticing in both biceps about six months earlier. Well, that led to an appointment with a neurologist, which led to the 1984 diagnosis of ALS. So at the age of 31, while embarking on an exciting, hopeful, optimistic new journey of life with my beautiful new wife, our lives came to a screeching halt with the news that I had three to five years to live. And God brought this verse to mind. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. In the middle of June in 1984, I had an aha moment. It was just a few days before I learned that I officially had ALS, and I was contemplating the validity of those words of Jesus from Matthew's Gospel. Because after years of long-distance running and weightlifting, I couldn't run anymore. And I was having trouble speaking, and my bicep and thigh muscles were twitching strangely. I felt out of balance, weak, 
and my soul was not at rest. All that I had believed about God for a quarter century was hanging on what I made of this situation. So I poured out my heart to God, and I asked for the faith and strength and all that I would need to throw my trust completely on Him. I didn't realize until after much reflection that that was the beginning of a life-altering journey, a new vision, a new calling, a new adventure of faith, a new opportunity to be a voice attesting to God's never-ending faithfulness, all-sufficient grace, and undying love in the life of an ordinary man facing extraordinary health challenges. The uncertainty was still there about the details of my medical diagnosis, but I sensed a new certainty that having put my trust in the validity of Jesus' words, he would lighten my burden and enlighten my path. And after asking for faith and strength, I received newfound strength to live out my faith, strength that has upheld me throughout the 26 years I have lived with ALS, and 21 of those on a ventilator. Can you imagine? 21 years on a ventilator. My life with ALS is an adventure of faith and in many ways has made me love our Lord Jesus all the more. I still miss being able to run, to breathe in fresh air, to sing, to turn the pages in a book, to look through my binoculars at the Andromeda galaxy, to take a vinyl record out of its album cover and put it on the turntable, to drive down the interstate with the windows open, hard for me when I think about a friend. The simple joys of having a prime rib dinner, to eat popcorn at a movie, and every single day I want to tell Susie with my own voice that I love her and hold her tight and take her lovely face in my hands and kiss it. But I can't. But I have learned through ALS to focus more on what I have than what I've lost. And believe me, what I have is infinitely more valuable, infinitely more precious. I have the love of my beautiful wife. I have a selfless love that has been sweetened and deepened by the trial we share. I have the love and support of two dedicated families. I have incredible friends with whom I'm able to communicate regularly via email. I have skilled, ventilator-trained, compassionate nurses who care for me and allow Susie to work full-time as a special ed teacher. I have a personal relationship with the living Jesus who tells me that in this world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world, and I still have the goal of reaching people with a life-transforming message of Jesus' grace. Even today, this is one of those, those ways that he is reaching out and touching other people because of the grace that God has given to him. There's more to his story. He went on to say that one of the other kind of mottos that he has adopted for his life are the words of Jim Elliot, that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot gave his life to bring the gospel to the very people that speared him to death and later came to know and love Jesus. And he was no fool. 
His life was cut short, but his influence for good will last for eternity. I adopted his quote as my life motto about the time that I came on staff, and now that my life has been stripped of just about everything that conventional wisdom would highly value, Eliot's words stand stronger and taller and wiser. That even if ALS takes my earthly life, it can never touch the eternal reward that I have gained by receiving God's amazing, all-sufficient grace and then investing this fleeting life into the eternal cause of Christ. I'm amazed by his faith. And I'm amazed by the love and loyalty of a wife who has stood with him and cared for him all of those years. And I'm amazed by the dedication of the staff who work on his ventilator, who clean his trach tube, who make sure that he doesn't get pneumonia and treat him every single day because he can't do it for himself. That's love and that's loyalty. When I think about the relationships that we have, and I would ask you to do the same, do we have that kind of commitment to one another? That we will stand with one another when we go through trials and be there. And be there in times of crisis, times of difficulty, to love and pray and help and assist. We want that, don't we? I mean, we want that in our marriage, we want that in our family relationships, and we want that in the body of Christ. The third thing I see in David and Jonathan's relationship was also this quality of accountability, mutual accountability. They made a commitment to one another before the Lord. In verse 23, he said, About the matter you and I have discussed, remember the Lord is witness between you and me forever. And again in verse 42, Jonathan will say to David, Go in peace, for we have a sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. And David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. I won't read it all, but as the story unfolded, here was this new moon festival. David was not there. Saul the first day decided, well, maybe David is unclean, and so he couldn't celebrate the festival today. But when he didn't show up the second day, he was angry. And when Jonathan tried to explain David's absence, Saul yelled at his son. He flew off in a rage, and he profanely cursed his son. Uh, he calls him out, and in verse 32, um, he talks about him, and he said, Excuse me, in verse 30, he says, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? And uh, he actually, in his rage, takes a spear and hurls it at his very own son to pin him to the wall. And Jonathan leaves in anger, and he gets up, and he will go to David the next day, and he will tell David, what has happened in this prearranged meeting. And the two of them meet and they will weep together because they know what this means. And in a tearful goodbye, they will pledge their loyalty to one another, but they will not see each other again. It is the end of a very dear 
friendship for both of them. Jonathan was a remarkable man. He would prove himself loyal to both David and to his father Saul. And although he was angry at his father, he never turned against him. He never left him, and in fact, he would die with him in battle. And David would mourn for his very, very trusted and faithful friend. Where can we find such a faithful friend? When we come to the scripture, we find, first of all, that we can find a friend like that in Jesus. That he is that faithful friend who will never leave us nor forsake us. We need that. We need that relationship with Christ because there are times when friends may disappoint or things may happen in a relationship that bring about some misunderstandings or things that we need to work through. But Jesus is always faithful, always loyal, always loving. He is always with us. But secondly, God intends for us to find those kind of relationships in the body of Christ. That in our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ, those that we find with whom we have this kind of kindred spirit and relationship, God wants to meet those needs that we have for fellowship and companionship. It's been said that people will come to a church and they will stay for a time because of the worship or because of the teaching or the ministries that we may have, but they will not stay for long if people don't make friends. We long for that. We expect that. We want to have those kind of relationships with one another. And I would like us to be that kind of church where people are finding and making friends. D.L. Moody said, Show me a church where there is love, and I will show you a church that is a power in the community. I mean, Jesus said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another in the body of Christ. And that takes effort on the part of each one of us to reach out and to be that kind of church. I love hearing the stories time and time again when I hear of that happening. Whether it's through our Stephen ministry of somebody coming alongside somebody to help them in a time of crisis. Whether it's through our ABFs and people reaching out and helping and praying for others that are a part of that adult Bible fellowship whether it's in a small group where people come alongside of one another, or whether it's through our prayer ministry. I mean, just recently, again, we had an example of that where I was actually working on the sermon the day this note came, and it was from Mike Marichek. And he said to my church family at Lakes Free, I want to tell you that you are what Christ meant for his body to be. You attended to me and to my beautiful wife Lizzie and our boys in such a caring way during this tough time. I am healing well and trusting God, but you are the most wonderful Christian friends. God bless you and keep you as you have done through him to us. I love hearing stories like that. And I pray that we would be that kind of church you when you are going through a crisis in your life as well. What kind of friend are you looking for? Are you looking for someone who can be open and honest with you? Someone who will laugh and cry with you? Someone who understands and accepts you? Someone who is that kindred spirit? And someone who will hold you accountable and stick with you? Then be that kind of friend. Pray 
ask God to show you and to think about the relationships that you have and get involved and reach out and be that kind of friend to someone else. Let's pray. Father, this is an area of life that all of us feel deeply. We need and want friends, and we want to be good friends to others as well. And so would you help that? Would you help us in this area to grow in our relationships with one another? And Father, by your grace, when, may we become that kind of church and fellowship where people sense your presence and sense joy in their relationships and sense that we really do care about one another. Thank you for the successes that we have seen, and Lord, in those areas where we have failed or missed it, Father, forgive us and help us to learn and to grow and to become the kind of church that you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. And now may God himself, the God who gives endurance and encouragement, give us a spirit of unity as we follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth we may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen.